the evidence is rather compelling. I think it's very compelling to believe. However, what's important to know is there's also some presuppositional things that we have to address and understand. Like how we even can make sense of evidence. Like what are the preconditions even necessary to talk about things like, you know, absolute morality or to even talk about why the world is the way that it is and what, what worldview makes, can even make sense of the universe that we're living in. We hear a lot of talk about science, right? Following the science. Um, you know, it's all science, though, is based on something called induction, right? We're assuming the future is going to be like the past. You experiment something time and time and time and time again and get the same results. Well, what, what worldview can make sense of that? A worldview where, where just matter in motion happening by time and chance or a worldview that says we are created by God, that there's actually personal governance and guidance. And so the point I'm trying to make is this, like while I think that we have a lot of compelling evidence for believing Christianity, believing the Bible is true, um, don't think as a, as a believer and follower of Christ and as a Christian where you always have to be the one kind of on your heels, like giving a defense of your faith. I think there's times, again, lovingly and not arrogantly, but I think that there's times that it's absolutely appropriate to really uh, question the unbelieving worldview and question people on, well, how does that, how, how does a worldview work that says, you know, that we're, we're just a cosmic accident? Like, what's the meaning? What's the purpose of anything in that worldview? So that being said, again, I think both approaches of giving evidence, but also recognizing there's some things we're presupposing um, as well, that both of those things play a role in why we believe certain things. I like how uh, Jason Lyle put it in talking about some presuppositional evidence or presuppositional reasons as well as evidence. He said this, the Bible, the truth of the Bible is obvious to anyone who is willing to fairly investigate it. He said the Bible is uniquely self-consistent and it's extraordinary authentic. It has changed the lives of millions of people who've placed their faith in Christ. It has been confirmed by countless times by archaeology and other sciences. It possesses a divine insight into the events of the future with perfect accuracy. When Christians read the Bible, they cannot help but recognize the voice of their creator. The Bible claims to be the word of God, and it demonstrates this claim by making knowledge possible. It is the standard of standards. The proof of the Bible is that unless you pre, unless its truth is presupposed, you wouldn't prove anything at all. So when we gather like each and every weekend and we're opening up the word of God and we're teaching and we're preaching from it, we're not saying like this is just good advice or this is just even an opinion of someone. We're not saying that we affirm some of the things in the Bible. We're saying that all of scripture came not from the mind of man, but from the mind of God. Now, that being said, you have to interpret the Bible in its proper context, right? If you ignore the context 
of any book, you can make it say whatever you want. So it's important that we understand the proper context. There's things written to certain people, and there's things that 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 are like example in the Old Testament. Some of the some of the sacrifices, some of the ceremonial things, it was written to a specific people for a specific time for a specific purpose, right? So you can't say, well, you know, these. These, for example, like in, in, in the Old Testament, talked about certain, you know, clothing and mixed fabric that they, they, they weren't supposed to wear. It's God showing their, their, that his covenant people, Israel, is to be separate from the other nations. You can't then, therefore, now in 2021, say you're sinning against God if you wear clothing with mixed fat. Like, no, like you're not taking the Bible serious, people that make those claims. You have to understand what is the proper context who it was written, right? What, what is this actually saying? It's called hermeneutics, how we interpret and study the Bible. But that being said, we should affirm that the Bible, all of the Bible is God's word and that God has written, God has spoken, God has revealed truth to us and he's given us his word. So here's the question. Is there a good reason to believe that the Bible is God's word? And I think that there is. I think that there is overwhelming, uh, overwhelming evidence that shows us we can trust the Bible. So let's dive into it. Second Peter chapter one. Peter's an eyewitness of Christ. He's a disciple of Christ, a follower of Christ. Peter's writing near the end of his life. He's writing. He's trying to encourage Christians who are suffering for their faith in Christ. And so Peter's writing, and he's saying, "Look, my my end is 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 coming soon." He says. Moreover, I endeavor that ye may be able after my decease, after I'm gone, to have these things always in remembrance, that we have not followed cunningly devised fables. He's saying we haven't followed just these, these make-believe stories that people are making up. We were not following these fables. That's not how scripture's written, by the way. It's written with historical depth and meaning and things that can be verified historically. Peter's saying, look, you're, we're not following made up stories, but rather, he says, um, when we have made known unto you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. So he's saying, rather, the Bible wasn't written based on fables, but rather on eyewitness accounts. Now Peter's talking about how that he's, 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 re, uh, he's remembering, reminiscing about when they went and, and, and Peter and James and John were with Jesus on what's called the Mount of Transfiguration and Moses and Elijah appear there. Peter's like, hey, let's build an altar to that. And yet they hear this voice from heaven from the Father saying, no, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. So basically saying, look, Jesus is greater than Moses. He's greater than Elijah. He's greater than all the law, greater than the prophets, because he was going to fulfill those things. Peter's remembering this. And he's saying, we have a more sure, verse 19, we have a more sure word of prophecy, whereunto ye do well to take heed, as unto a light that shineth in a dark place, until the day dawn and the day star, talking about Jesus, arise in your hearts, knowing this first, no prophecy of the scripture is of a private interpretation. In other words, it didn't come from the mind of man. Man didn't just make this stuff up. It wasn't some guy that made it up. But rather, it came in old time by the will of, not by the will of man, but by holy men of God 
Those men spoke as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. This is the doctrine called inspiration, that we believe the Scripture didn't come from man. Yes, there were human authors, but behind those 40 human authors, there was one author, and that was the mind of God. And the Scripture that we have is God's Word. So what are the reasons that we say that? What are some good reasons that we think that? Let's dive in. Last night I preached for an hour. Last service cut it down to about 45. So we'll see, we'll see how we do now. Um, how, we're not, nobody's in a hurry. It's cold outside. What can you do anyway? Well, like Barry said, if, it, if, if when you're done, just get up and walk out, all right? Even if the sermon's not done, then I'll know it's time to stop. But the, look, how, what are the reasons we have to believe the Bible's God's word? Well, number one is this, fulfilled prophecy. Fulfilled prophecy. The Bible writes of things before they happen and then they happen. In fact, Isaiah the prophet said this in, in, in the context of the trial of all the other gods. Isaiah says this, that, that Jehovah the, is the true God because not only can he tell you the past and the meaning of it, but he can tell you the future from the past. In other words, he can tell you what will happen before it happens. That, was, that also is what authenticated a prophet in the word of God, was what they said would come to pass, did it come to pass? And if it did, it authenticated it. If, they, if it didn't, it showed that it didn't come from God. It was their own, it came from the mind of man, and they were a false prophet. Don't ever listen to them again. Fulfilled prophecy, though. Now, there's other religions that claim they have fulfilled prophecy, but the problem with that is their prophecies failed. Like, for example, so much of Mormonism, right, is based on the prophecies of Joseph Smith. He claimed he got these golden tablets directly from God, and, and, and Joseph Smith made these prophecies. But the problem with that is Joseph's prophecies failed. Joseph Smith prophesied in Missouri that there was going to be, in Independence, Missouri, that there was going to be this temple that was built and the glory of, and, and this glory uh, uh, of God would come in the form of a cloud and rest on that temple. He, pro he prophesied that in 1832. And he said, this generation, in, in this generation, it's going to happen. But it never happened. And Mormons said, well, just wait. I mean, maybe, I, Joseph, it, it, look, the Mormons were chased out of Missouri. They never built that temple. They said, well, maybe one day it'll be built in that generation. Maybe there was, maybe there's still a baby who was like, you know, born right as the same day Joseph made that prophecy. And maybe that baby is like living somewhere today that's a hundred, you know, a hundred years. And they kept pushing it up. And, but eventually, you know what? They admitted it didn't happen. And you know what that showed? That prophecy came from the mind of Joseph not from the mind of God. The Jehovah's Witnesses in their Watchtower magazine, they prophesied that, that Jesus had already returned to earth and that he was going to overthrow the government and set up his kingdom. They said this in 1987. Or no, sorry, in 1874. 1874, they said that, that Jesus returned and that in 1914, so it's a specific prophecy, in 1914, he's going to overthrow the government and begin his millennial reign. Well, that didn't happen. So then in 1918, they changed it. They said, well, in 1925, Moses, or Ab I'm sorry, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, they're going to return to this earth and set up the kingdom. 
and it didn't happen. And so, you know, not, then they said after that, well, let's not be in a rush. God's going to work in his timing. Well, yeah, of course, God's going to work in his timing. The problem is you made a specific prophecy of a specific time and it failed. And you know what that shows us is it shows us it came from the mind of man, not the mind of God. But here's our question. Are there prophecies in the scripture that have been fulfilled? I would say astonishingly, clearly, yes. Many. But the question is, is the radical atheist Aaron Ra correct when he said just a couple years ago that there's no prophecies that have been fulfilled? I mean, he said there's none. None. There's zero. He said, bring me your best ones, Christians, because all of the ones you bring, they're so vague. It could have been fulfilled by, I mean, it just was going to happen anyway, or it was written after. I mean, he made a very radical claim. But what's ironic about that is Christians were like, okay, we'll bite. And they brought him some, and you know, he never wanted, the, the only, the, his only response was, was mocking. Like he never wanted to actually engage them in any meaningful conversation. When it really came down to, okay, well, here's some specific ones. But the question is, what, what are some prophecies that have been fulfilled? Well, in a few weeks, we're going to talk about why we believe Jesus is the Messiah. And we're going to look at some of those messianic prophecies that we see were fulfilled clearly in Christ. But what are some other ones? Well, let's just look at a couple just to put some feet to this. Ezekiel 26. Ezekiel 26, this is in 586 B.C. 586 BC, Ezekiel is prophesying about the destruction of the city of Tyre. And at this time, Tyre was a powerful, powerful place. It was, the, it was the capital, really, of all of the Phoenician Empire, all of the trade. In fact, for 2,000 years, Tyre had never been invaded or conquered. So this isn't just some weak little nation surrounded by powerful nations that was probably going to be conquered, you know, anyway. This was a powerful, powerful place. And Ezekiel, he prophesies in Ezekiel 26 that its tires going to be destroyed. And he says there's going to be many nations. Ezekiel 26 verse 3 says, Therefore thus saith the Lord God, I am against the Otiris, and I will cause in many nations. That's more than one. Many nations are going to come up against thee as the sea causes his waves to come up. He goes on, he says they're going to destroy their walls. They're going to scrape her dust. They're going to make her like the top of a rock. Verse 5, it says it's going to be nothing left but a place where people fish. Just a place of spreading of the nets. Goes on later on to talk about how the city is going to be thrown into the water. This is a pretty specific prophecy. He goes on to talk about how Nebuchadnezzar, so it goes from they, multiple ones, to then some specific things that Nebuchadnezzar specifically is going to do. He's going to destroy the daughter villages surrounding them. Nebuchadnezzar is going to come in and attack. And you know what happened? Nebuchadnezzar attacked Tyre. And he actually like, did this siege on Tyre for 13 years. It says that Nebuchadnezzar was going to destroy her daughters. And that's exactly what happened. He destroyed the daughter villages surrounding them. And Nebuchadnezzar put this siege on the city of Tyre, and for 13 years. You might think, well, how in the world could somebody last 13 years? Well, off of Tyre, there was what's called the Isle of Tyre. And so the, the, the people in Tyre, they retreated to the island of Tyre. 
And, and Nebuchadnezzar, though he had a strong um, land army, didn't have uh, the, any capacity to really attack them by sea. So they were able to get supplies and bring supplies in and retreat actually to that island. And for 13 years, finally, Nebuchadnezzar went in, kind of pillaged and destroyed Tyre, left victorious. And so some people, here's what they'll point out. Here's what some of the skeptics of the Bible will say. Ah, see, some of the things were fulfilled, but not all of it. But here's the thing. It doesn't say that Nebuchadnezzar is going to do all of that. It says Nebuchadnezzar is going to do some of that. But it says that, that there's, there's going to be attack in waves. So indication that more than one nation will attack them. Well, here's what's fascinating. 300 years later, along comes someone by the name of Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great comes in. Again, Nebuchadnezzar did those things that said that he was going to do. And then in 332 BC, Alexander the Great shows up. Now, Alexander the Great, if you remember, uh, if you remember from history, Alexander the Great was just this fierce conqueror. And man, he was just driven. He would, he would march his army for days in a row to, to, to really to, to, to not allow other people to build up their armies and build up their defense. So Alexander the Great, just this ferocious um, conqueror, he comes. Now, Alexander the Great, though he was ferocious, he would actually offer people really an opportunity to not have any bloodshed. Basically, surrender, and I won't kill you. <laughs> it was really his ultimatum. Well, Alexander does the same thing with Tyre. And he sends this entourage of people into Tyre. But Tyre didn't appreciate this ultimatum. They took over 100 people. I know this is pretty gruesome, but they took those, the entourage of people, took them on top of the wall, slit their throats and killed them and said, there's your answer, Alexander. Well, Alex, again, not a, not a smart thing to do with Alexander the Great. So Alexander the Great comes in, destroys Tyre. He literally destroyed the city of Tyre and threw it into the water. Because he built a causeway, he built a bridge. Because just like 300 years earlier, the people in Tyre retreated to this island. But Alexander the Great wasn't content with just letting them retreat. He threw their city into the water. And from all of the debris, the stone, the, 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 the timber, he built a bridge to go and to attack the Isle of Tyre. Completely destroying them. To this day, you know what happens in the Isle of Tyre? Now, there's a modern-day Tyre. Again, it was completely destroyed. It was never rebuilt in the sense of, 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 of the, they, they never were uh, the, the capital of, of trade. And, and those people were, were never recovered from that. But the Isle of Tyre is underwater. You know what they do there today? They cast nets. They fish. Is the only thing that they do. This is a specific prophecy that Ezekiel the prophet is prophesying that Tyre is going to be destroyed at a time when they were a superpower. And yet, you know what we see? We see the fulfillment of this prophecy. I think is pretty compelling. What about, here's just one more that we'll, we'll talk about briefly. There's a lot we could look at. Daniel 7 and 8. Daniel, in Daniel 7 and 8, he predicts world empires and world rulers. He predicts how that the, the Medo-Persian empire is going to rise to power. And that how 
how the, the, the Persian a- aspect is going to start out less powerful and smaller, but they're actually going to rise and become more powerful. That's exactly what happened. Daniel pr- pr- predicts then after that, there's going to be another conqueror, another kingdom, Alexander the Great. Who's going to be mighty and how he's going to do all of these things and conquer these nations. And I mean, it's so specific. It even talks about how that 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 ruler at his death is not going to leave his kingdoms to his family. But he's going to leave it to the strong. And that's exactly what Alexander the Great did. He died a very young death. And on his deathbed, they were saying, who are you leaving all these kingdoms to? And Alexander said, leave them to the strong. He left them to his four generals, which again is just a recipe for disaster. He left them to his four generals, just as was predicted. Daniel also predicts that out of one of those kingdoms was going to arise another kingdom. We see that Antichus Epiphanes was fulfilled this and how that he would be extremely arrogant and cruel, how he would take away sacrifices from the temple, which is exactly what happened. And that he would die, Daniel says, without human means. Antichus Epiphanes died a rather unusual death. He didn't die from conspirators. He didn't die in battle, which is how most conquerors would die. He died literally of going mad. He went crazy and died. It, what's fascinating, what's fascinating is Daniel 7 and 8. Daniel, and we'll look at a messianic prophecy of, of Daniel as well here in a few weeks. But in Daniel 7 and 8, this is so specific of these world kingdoms and empires. In fact, you know what the argument against Daniel 7 and 8? It's not, oh, this was talking about someone else. No, because it's so clear and in consecutive order of these kingdoms and rulers. It's so clear. The only argument against it is, well, clearly it was written after. You know, I mean, clearly, right? Just because... Because prophecy can't happen. That's the reasoning. It's like, it's like Richard Dawkins' argument against the resurrection. Well, dead people can't rise. <laughs> like, like That's his argument. Well, okay, that's not a good argument, right? Just that it didn't happen because it didn't happen. You know, just, it, it's, it's humorous. It, we're, we're, as believers are, are accused of circular reasoning because we use the Bible to, to, you know, as, as our defense. But, I mean, you talk about viciously circular reasoning. Well, it didn't happen just because it couldn't have happened. It didn't, ha- it didn't happen because it didn't happen. Like, okay, well... Well, why do you say that it was written later? Why do people argue that Daniel had to have been written in the the second century is what what the claim is. Is, I mean, is there good evidence that you're coming up with this conclusion or, or what is the reasoning? But it's actually an argument not because of evidence. It's an argument in spite of evidence to the contrary. Because we have, you've probably heard the name Josephus, who's a first century historian, not a follower of Jesus. But Josephus in his writings gives indication of, and talks about the book of Daniel, and gives indication of Daniel's much earlier writing than what the skeptics say. Again, that's a non-Christian source. Also, maybe you've heard of a, of a, a massive discovery called the Dead Sea Scroll discovery that confirms and gives Daniel 
the early date BC. So my, my point is this, like, I think this is rather compelling when you look at, and this is just two of many other prophecies that have been fulfilled, that were written hundreds of years prior, that were fulfilled with great, in great detail, that were very specific. So fulfilled prophecy, why do we believe the Bible's true? What's some evidence that we believe it's true? Well, fulfilled prophecy. Again, you see that's the criteria the Bible itself gives. Like, hey, tell, you know, if, if someone is, is true, then tell the end from the beginning. And yet we see that in scripture, but not just fulfilled prophecy. Here's another, I think, compelling reason that we can trust the Bible as God's word. And that's that it's historically reliable. The Bible's written in a historical context, especially the New Testament. We see like there's all these historical facts. So Luke, who wrote Luke and he wrote Acts. Luke was a physician who was commissioned by a Roman official by the name of Theophilus. Theophilus said, go examine this evidence about Christ. And, and so Luke did just that. Luke interviewed eyewitnesses. Luke compiled documents. Luke was investigating these things. And what's interesting is in the book of Acts, Luke lists 84, 84 historically confirmed eyewitness details. Like he lists things that were that had to have been from an eyewitness, and, and historically, those things have been confirmed. Now, I'm not saying, therefore, the Bible's true because of this one fact. I'm just saying this, to me, is rather compelling to really overcome the argument, well, the Bible's just copied from these other religions and ancient myths. No, actually, it's fundamentally different in the way that it was written. Luke gives us 84 historically confirmed details just from the book of Acts. John, John, Jesus, one of his closest followers, he gives us 39 confirmed historical facts. Or 50, I'm sorry, 59 historical facts. The New Testament documents, the New, the New Testament documents give us, listen to this, they cite more than 30 people who've been confirmed not by Christians but who've been confirmed by secular sources and by archaeology. Now, again, I'm not saying like this is our only argument for why we like, therefore the Bible's true because of this. That's not what I'm saying. But I am saying it's rather compelling to think that when you put it with the other arguments, I think that it's very compelling when you recognize the historical accuracy of the Bible. So what happens, people try to attack the validity of scripture by pointing to contradictions. They point, try to point to contradictions. And this is something for years and years, this happens. But you know what I find? The, the examples that they give are so uncompelling that many times it's just a simple, a simple study of looking about how that the gospel writers and the gospels harmonize. It's not that they're contradicting each other. It's just they're giving it from their eyewitness view and they're highlighting certain aspects. They're not contradicting. And, and I, I made reference to this, I think a couple months ago. To me, this was an eye opener. I don't know if you'll find this very compelling for you or, or very interesting, but I found this so interesting. I was listening to a debate. This debate was from two years ago, and it was on the unbelievable radio broadcast. Maybe you've heard of it uh, in London. 
Uh, Justin Brierly hosts this, and what he does is he tries to bring people together, Christian and non-Christian, and have these discussions and in, in, in these debates. So Justin Brierly brought someone from London, Peter Williams, who was a, a Christian, Bible believer, historian, and he brought in Bart Ehrman. Bart Ehrman's a, a, a skeptic, and here teaches, I don't know if he still teaches there, I know for years he taught at the University of North Carolina in Chapel Hill. And Bart Ehrman uh, grew up saying he was a, a believer and fundamental Christian, believed in the inerrancy, that meaning scriptures without error, and he affirmed that. Well, Bart Ehrman, as he began doing textual criticism and comparing and studying manuscripts, along with the problem of evil and suffering in the world, Bart came to the conclusion that he's now, he calls himself a happy agnostic, doesn't believe anymore, says we can't possibly know what the original writing said just from the copies that we have. That's his conclusion. So, so Bart Ehrman is, is, is having this debate with Peter Williams. And, and Bart Ehrman's just trying to hammer Peter. Like, hey, Peter, I just need to know, man. Are you one of these crazy fundamental Christians that believe every word of the Bible? He's like, I just need to know that. Because if you are, I could list hundreds of contradictions in the Bible that there's no way you could defend. I mean, and just, you know, Bart just spoke with just such... Such confidence, like just amazing, like how confident Bart seemed in, in this. And, and so, so Justin Briarly, the host of the debate, said, okay, well, you know, Bart, you keep hammering this about these contradictions. Can you give us an example? What do you mean about just a, a contradiction that there's no way it can be reconciled? To me, this was so telling. Because the example he gave, out of hundreds that he claimed he could have given. He said, well, a clear one is the death of Judas. The death of Judas? Well, well Matthew tells, that, tells us that Judas hanged himself. That Judas took his life by hanging himself. Well, in Acts, it says that Judas died from basically, I know this sounds gruesome, but from falling and, and his guts bursting out. And this is the example that Bart says is just irreconcilable. There's no way without just, without stretching, without stretching it and, and trying to just, you know, make this work. Like in his mind, that was the irreconcilable contradiction. And Peter Williams was like, well, Bart, there's actually an explanation or a, a, a viable explanation. You know, he very, very well could have hanged himself and then no one maybe finding the body for a day or two days and the rope would break and he'd fall down and there's your explanation of your butt, your, of his guts bursting out. But Bart just thought that was the most ridiculous. That there's just absolutely no way those could be reconciled. But to me, it was so telling. Because we have very, very little information about it. Obviously, there was a, a context that, that the early church knew and understood more details and more information than what we know. We have very little information, but I found it to me. To me, it was so, so telling at just how uncompelling of an example that he gave. Like of, of all the clear contradictions, Bart, and yet the one you give is so uncompelling. And again, I'm not saying that there's not some difficult ones we got to dive into and that we have to, to really just, you know, study it and, 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 and try to understand more context. I'm not saying that there's not some difficult things in the Bible, right, that we have to reconcile. But I am saying this, 
that when you hear statements, these bold statements about all of these contradictions in the Bible, um, I would encourage you to ask, well, like what? Let's talk about it. Let's dive into it. Hey, I may not have an answer right here off the top of my head, but let me dive into it and we can, we can talk about it. But I think what you find is a lot of times people, like they, they're just repeating something that, again, I know Christians can be guilty of doing the same thing, but they're, they're just repeating something that they heard or so, something they saw on YouTube or something they heard that, that a professor say. But yet what we, what we conclude is this, that the gospels were written, the Bible was written with historic, historical reliability. We can trust the Bible's God's word because fulfilled prophecy, because of historical reliability. We're almost done. I'll go through, through these last two quickly. But then we have something called the preservation of our text. Or the preservation of our text. That the Bible that we have, now again, just because we can show that it's been preserved doesn't therefore mean that it's inspired and it's true. But this is very, very telling and very compelling when you look at we can trust that what was written is what we have today. The text has been preserved. Now your, your kids or your grandkids, I promise you, are going to hear this argument. And that is this. The Bible that you have has been changed. It's not what was written. It's not what was written thousands of years ago. We have no idea what was written thousands of years ago. And here's their argument. They say this because all the manuscripts that we have, there's so many differences in them. There's so many differences. So we can't possibly know what the original said. Now, here's the thing. Your kids are going to hear that argument. And they're going to hear that as just, hey, this is just a fact. Now, the differences in the manuscripts is a fact. But it's not the whole story. In fact... The critics want to lead you to believe something that is actually not factual and not the true story. They'll present some of these facts, but then they'll put their twist of the conclusion they want you to come to on it. The reality is this, that just in the Greek manuscripts, we have 6,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. And that number keeps growing because they keep finding more. There's over 6,000 Greek manuscripts. That's not counting other, other manuscripts and other languages that were copied and copied and copied, but 6,000 Greek. Again, the skeptics say, well, there's so many differences. I mean, this just, you got all these different messages. Well, actually, that's not true. You have all these differences because we have so many manuscripts. And when you bring these manuscripts together, you know what you have? Not multiple different New Testaments. Not multiple different messages. You actually have the same message. That no doctrine is different. The differences in these manuscripts, in fact, 99% of the differences are word order and spelling differences. I mean, okay, the New Testament was not copied by professional scribes. It was copied by the everyday common people many times in fear of persecution, many times in fear of the Romans, but you have their, their copying. And when you bring all these manuscripts together, you know what you have? You have the majority, the, the majority of these differences. It's just that words were spelled wrong or word order. It, and again, it just, you, you, you hear some of these arguments and it's like, well, that's not the whole story. 
Yet we have the same New Testament. And here's what's so important. Last thing I'll say about this. Pastor Larry did a whole sermon on the preservation of the text in our series a couple years ago. Can we trust the Bible? Go back and listen to it. It's easy to find on our website. Pastor Caleb talked about inspiration. Pastor Larry did a whole sermon on preservation of the text. I did a sermon on the conicity of scripture. Basically, why do we trust these 66 books? Why not some of the other ones that people claim that Christians purposely left out of the Bible? And I talk about that in a whole sermon. But the preservation of the text, here's what's important to know. There were multiple lines of transmission. That might not sound very significant, but it is very significant, and here's why. No one person, no one group had control of the copying of the text. And here's why that's so important. Because when the skeptics make the claim, oh yeah, you guys have all these manuscripts, but they were corrupted early on. So yeah, you have all these copies, but all these copies were copied from the text that was corrupted. But that's not what the evidence shows. The evidence shows that there's multiple lines of transmission, meaning that it didn't just come from, from one source that copied it down, that was then passed on and passed on and passed on. There were multiple lines of transmission, meaning the claim that Christians changed it to make it say what they wanted is absolutely easy to refute because you have multiple lines of transmission. Basically, what we have is this. We have text, thousands of texts, thousands of manuscripts. Now, again, some of them are as early. There's, there's fragments as early as within decades of the original writing. Now, not a full copy, right? A fragment, a fragment of, of, of the Gospel of John, a fragment of Paul's letter to the Philippians, fragments. But when you take those fragments, compare them to the more fuller text, you see it's the same message. So the burden of proof then lies on the skeptic who makes the claim it's been changed. Tell us why you think that. Because the evidence we have doesn't show that. We have, we have manuscripts from all over the world, from all different places, all different times. And you know what you have? The same New Testament. Sure, there's textual variants, but we have so many manuscripts we can compare them. I would say that's pretty miraculous compared to anything else we have of ancient writings. A lot of the ancient writings and works of antiquity, you know what we have? We have copies that are four and five and six and 700 years old old. You know, but the Bart Ehrmans aren't, aren't writing books on, on, on misquoting any of those people. But why is it he's writing bestsellers on misquoting Jesus? Why is he writing bestsellers on how God, um, or how, um, how Jesus became God and how the, oh yeah, originally that's not what the text said, but they changed. Why are they, why are they on this campaign to try to discredit and try to make our young people, especially not have a confidence in scripture. Well, I would say because if the Bible is true, if God's word is what it claims, then that changes everything. And there's a reason why people want to discredit it. But I want you to understand this. I want us to know this, that we have amazing manuscript evidence that our text has been preserved for us. That what we have has not been changed. At least that's surely not 
when you follow the evidence and follow the truth where it leads, that's surely not the conclusion. That so many, so many scholars for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, that's certainly not the conclusion they came to. But why is it that now in the last 150 to 200 years that, that you find that all of a sudden people are changing their view and their position on it? And it could very well be. I think it's because there's people that don't want it to be true. They don't want it to be true. They don't want to. As if it is true, like I said, it changes everything. The text has been preserved. We'll close with this. The complexity. The complexity and diverseness, but yet the unity of the text. The composition and unity. 40 different authors over the span of 1,500 years on three different continents. And you know what you have? You have a unified message. Check out this chart. I shared this on uh, Facebook this last week. Maybe you've seen this before. But this chart is showing cross all the cross-references in the Bible. There's over 63,000 cross-references. A cross-reference is just when one scripture is referencing another scripture. So these lines up top, they're all cross-references. All of the white lines at the bottom are each chapter of the Bible. That huge one in the middle is Psalm 119, the longest chapter in the Bible. So all of these cross-references, the Bible is so complex, but yet it's unified. How do you explain that? How do you explain that there was over 40 human authors over 1,500 years? On three different continents in their writing, yet you have the same unified message. And I would say for me, that's rather compelling. I would say we have a lot of good reason when we say we believe the Bible is God's word. It's not in spite of evidence and oh, we don't have any good evidence, but we just believe it by faith. Like that, it's not a blind faith. It's actually a faith that's grounded on historical reliability, grounded in fulfilled prophecy, grounded in historical facts, grounded in the unity and how the Bible was, was, was put together and written. It's complex, but yet unified. Yet look, just knowing all of these facts up here doesn't change someone's heart. And that's what it's important to know, especially when you're sharing your faith with people. That you know what? Maybe you can win an argument and maybe you can overcome some of the objections. But ultimately, if God doesn't change someone's heart, if the Holy Spirit of God doesn't give them new life and a new heart, then all those arguments really are just going to their head, not their heart. But that being said, I think many times God will use some of the evidence that we can give to people to hopefully get them to consider. And, and for his spirit to begin the work in people's hearts in minds when it comes to can we trust the bible but ultimately as his followers we know that god's word is true because we know his voice we know the voice of the shepherd the holy spirit of god brings his word to life in our hearts so again i'm not saying oh we know it's true because the holy spirit tells us it's actually it's actually much more than just that it's actually grounded on historical reliability. It's grounded in the fact that prophecy's been fulfilled. It's grounded in the fact that the Bible has been confirmed by history and archaeology and science. It, 
It's grounded in the fact that it didn't come just from the mind of man, but yet it came from the mind of God. So if you're here today, maybe you're not a believer. Maybe you're an honest skeptic. I hope that today that God will use maybe some of those things to encourage you and prompt you to follow the truth wherever it leads. Don't take my word for it. Don't believe just because someone told you. Follow the truth no matter where it leads you. If you're here today, you are a believer and you know Christ as your Savior. Maybe God just spoken to you about having a confidence in his word and also treasuring his word more. That God has revealed to, God hasn't just left us alone to figure things out. No, God has spoken. God has given us his word and God has revealed truth to us and we can be confident and believe it and we can trust it. Hope this introduction to our series has been a blessing. Looking forward uh, to, to continuing in this uh, series for the next several weeks leading up all the way up um, to Easter on why we believe Jesus rose from the dead.